Hello, friends, and welcome to the Brother Cousins Podcast, episode 61. It's January 2023, and we are continuing our podcast series about the nature of God and the truth of God as revealed in the Scripture. Today is a title that may seem kind of strange to some of you, introducing a term that is not commonly used, and it's cruciform hermeneutics. Cruciform hermeneutics is what we'll be talking about today. So before we jump in on that topic, Jared is going to kind of give us a a working definition that we may elaborate on, kind of play with a little bit. Then we're going to try to describe the problem using some scripture and helping us understand why uh, it's important to understand cruciform hermeneutics and apply it. And then we'll show you some examples of how that's done. So those that's kind of the, the layout that we're going to follow today. So Jared, Jeffrey, good to talk to you. And uh, Jeffrey, talk to us a little bit about cruciform hermeneutics and, and why we need to pay attention. So this is a term I've actually borrowed from some theologians. And it it doesn't have to be as complicated in our understanding. There's generally four accepted ways to do hermeneutics it's literal moral allegorical and anagogical and we won't get into what all of those things mean because what we really want to focus on and the way we can make it simple is hermeneutics is the lens by which we view the scripture and it it can be broadened from there but since we're going to talk about cruciform hermeneutics we're going to strictly apply this to the bible and cruciform simply means pertaining to the shape of a cross. And so as we talk about cruciform hermeneutics, what we really want to talk about is viewing the Bible from a lens of Jesus Christ, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. How we approach God's word is taking this thought process from Hebrews 13, 20, the eternal covenant, where God covenanted with himself to bring about a savior and draw that forward to the cross and from the cross as we live our lives and as we see people living their lives throughout the corpus of Scripture. That was pretty impressive, Jared. I have to hand it to you. So I think it's important, Jared and Christopher, as as we travel down this road to make sure that we're clear on some of our terms. And Jared, you did a good job of, of clarifying what cruciform hermeneutics means, but I I think we need to dig in a little bit to the distinction between hermeneutics and exegesis and eisegesis. These are some popular buzz terms that you may hear um, as you hear people talk about different types of ways to handle the scriptures. And so if hermeneutics is the lens or the, the artistic scientific approach to the scriptures to really understand what they mean, um, what they're talking about, how to apply them, and so on. Um, exegesis is really just interpreting it in a way that it was intended, really understanding what it means. So exegesis is a part of hermeneutics, but they are not meant to be used interchangeably. That I think that can be a confusing thing for a lot of people. So exegesis yeah. means that you're pulling the scripture out, you're understanding what it means within its context, whereas eisegesis is actually the exact opposite. Eisegesis is where you're inserting yourself into the text, your context in the text, and that is how 
you're actually trying to look at scriptures. The way that I often um, explain this to people is that you're inserting yourself in your context in your interpretation. And that's just not the way that it's supposed to be done. It, it's right. God inspired these scriptures for a reason. And it's important that we take that reason into consideration. And we use that in a way and we pull that intent out and that message out. And then we start breaking down how to actually apply it to ourselves. Yep. So the meaning is exegesis. The application is more of that homiletical process. If homiletical is even a word, I'm not really sure. So, and you know, the reason I want to talk about this is because if you go hand a Bible and there's a, a channel that people have watched, and I've actually had a few people talk to me about it recently. I think it's Living Waters Ministries or something where this guy goes out in public, sets up a microphone, and will call out individuals and engage them in conversation. And as he's talking about the Bible, people approach that conversation with a preset idea. And we're going to have an idea about the scripture when we approach it. And this really became important to me as I sat down and started doing some writing and having actually kind of some things that helped us get this podcast going was understanding my thought process as I approached the scripture and how I was viewing certain passages and, and the, the preset idea I had moving forward. And so as we have a cruciform hermeneutic as Christians, where we want to view the Bible in light of God's son and God's plan in his son, and how it was brought about through the Old Testament and how it is to be executed by us today, then I go to the text because I know God had a plan and God has a plan. And how do I fit within that plan and interact with that plan and live my life because of that plan? And that's where I think that your basic definition of it's a lens really comes into play here is we need to look at the scriptures through this lens of looking for the message that that points or builds to Jesus. Because it, it's really easy to look at the scriptures and how it points to the United States of America or how it points to me. But we need to look at it in, in what the scriptures really were intended. And that was to help us see the way that God interacts with man to bring them to himself through Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful segue into the passage we want to open with. When Jesus came to the world, and, and I don't know where we want to talk about this, so I'm going to do it right here. God had been silent for 400 years. He's come and talked to a few people. Jesus is born. There's a lot going on. John comes on the scene. Jesus comes on the scene, and now there is this explosion of things going on that even people like Nicodemus said, we cannot explain this away. They fight Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They want to silence him. They argue with him. And in John 5, he is having a conversation with some Jews and teaching some, some Jews. He says in verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And so he's laid it out. He's talking about the scripture. He says about the scripture, and these are they which testify of me. And that's really where I kind of began to get a hold of this concept and this, this mindset of allowing the scriptures to show me God's plan unfolding, 
pertaining to Jesus Christ, both from the Old Testament, how it's moving to him, and the New Testament, how it's moving from him and reshaping the world in the image of Christ and reshaping specifically his people in the world in the image of Jesus Christ. Because all of the scripture, Jesus says, testifies of me. You search them, but in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He doesn't put a but. He doesn't put some contractive or negative contraction in there. It's the conjoining, and these testify of me. Yeah, I just love that because we have a statement right out of the, the mouth of the Lord saying, if you want to understand the Old Testament, that's what the scriptures means in this context. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you've got to understand that they are a testimony of the coming of the Christ. And if you're not looking at it that way, then you're going to be missing something important. And that's what he was trying to get across to them that, you know, if have you not read, right? He says that so many times, the assertion that if they had read, then they would understand that they were telling of him. And, you know, I think this is a problem whenever we don't look at the scripture for the right reason and in the right way. And Paul addressed some people in the book of Romans that had this same this same attitude. And in Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So Paul's like, they are, they are on fire for God. They love God, and they want to serve him, but their efforts aren't according to knowledge. Well, why not? Well, verse 3, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And so basically, they are so busy trying to accomplish their own goals and using God's word as a proof text for it that they're missing the point completely. And he said the point here in verse 4 is, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before. And when we say it's the end, it doesn't mean it's, it's well, it's over now, even though it, the coming in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ did mean that the law was fulfilled. But when we think about the law being the, the, that Christ being the end of the law, it's the completion, the fulfillment, the wrapping up of the whole point to. And so Paul is telling Israel, if you want to know God, and have zeal according to knowledge. You have to establish God's righteousness, submitting to him, understanding that Christ is the focal point, the finishing line, the whole point of the whole Old Testament. And that's kind of what we want to aim at today. Right. And and what you see Paul do is he sets them up in Romans 2. And he's writing this letter to a mixed group of people in the congregations in Rome. He talks about the way the Gentiles live and the way their civilizations have gone. And then he doesn't dismiss the Jews from that conversation and really brings it home on them. And he chides them hard. You have the oracles of God. And he asks, what's the benefit of being a Hebrew? Much in every way, especially because we had the ordinance of God. We had God's writing. And he goes on to explain what good does it do us? If we don't keep it, what good is having the law if you don't keep the law? And so we testify to the law. The law is good. We are evil. And and on and on and on. And then he brings it to this fine point as he moves into 
salvation in Jesus Christ, he, he hits on this point, that Christ is the end of the law. And this is the same word where he talks about, where Peter rather talks about the end of your faith, the conclusion of your faith, the, the fulfillment of your faith being revealed in Jesus Christ and in our deaths. Jesus was always the end of the law, and that was wrapped in a mystery. They couldn't see that when it was given. They couldn't see that as they progressed, but it was a promise that they were given over and over and over again. When you go through the major prophets, you look at God promising punishment that was going to be brought upon them. The reminder is always there about who God is and what his plan is. What the lessons they learned from that were, who we are, and how important and special we are. They built themselves up instead of building God up because they didn't have a hermeneutic of understanding God's plan and how they interacted with that and were a part of that. And I love how Paul really just hammers that point home, Jared, with a really a single statement. He recognizes that they're zealous, but then he says because you're truly ignorant and it, it's it, and ignorant in the way that, that Jesus says, you think you have eternal life, but you haven't really looked at them the right way. He says, because you haven't looked at these things the right way, you guys are zealous, but you seek to establish your own righteousness rather than truly understanding and submitting to the righteousness of God. Um, and so we see this, you've got to shift your perspective. You've got to understand what the scriptures are trying to teach because otherwise you're going to be lost and this is going to be of no benefit to you. Yeah. I, I think now would be a really good time to show some examples of how Jesus actually did this himself in his own teaching. And um, for our listeners who want to semi-follow along we're going to be going to Matthew 12 and we're going to reference several threads within Matthew 12 where Jesus showed us how this is done. And that's what I love about this. So in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse one, there's a situation here where Jesus is confronted about his perceived failure to observe the Sabbath. And so uh, chapter one uh, essentially, he and his disciples, or verse one, they're they're walking through a field on the Sabbath, and they're hungry, and they're picking some grain, and they're just basically eating it, right? They're living, literally, hand to mouth, right? They're eating it. And the Pharisees said, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So they're accusing him of sin. Verse three, he says, but have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered in the house of God and ate the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests of the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so, here we find that they had a particular understanding of this scripture, right? They had made up all these little laws to try to keep it from breaking the actual law. And by their own definition, picking and eating grain was breaking it. But Jesus, who is the law, 
um, said it's not. And he essentially says that, don't you see how there be people who you would respect in the scripture who by your definition would break the Sabbath, but God didn't condemn them? Speaking of David, who did what he had to do, and the priests who had to work doing sacrifice on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is saying, basically, you're judging people even harsher than God did in the scripture in regard to the Sabbath. And then he says, you know, you're mis you're missing or your understanding was wrong. And here's how you can shift is that what's more important than all the little rules of keeping the Sabbath is that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And that condemning the guiltless is a bigger deal than maybe breaking the Sabbath. I don't know. There's maybe a better way to say that. Well, I think we see this idea presented multiple ways through the ministry of Jesus. And the emphasis here should not be on it's not important to obey the Sabbath. Um, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Right. That's what the Pharisees are perceiving it as. And you know, whenever you you look at Jesus and the life of Jesus through this lens of strict obedience to the law, like the Pharisees did, and and as an example, and, and I'm going to point back to Romans 10 here, they were going about to establish their own righteousness because of their ignorance. The way that they did that is in these times they had developed what's called the Mishnah. And the, what the Mishnah is, is essentially an external document to help them obey the law better. And so they took the law that God had given, and then they put extra binding features on it to say, well, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, because we don't ever even want to get close to breaking the Sabbath. It was and the, so they put all the, and that's Jewish. where Jesus talks about, you know, you put heavy burdens on people that you're not willing to lift yourself. All of this is coming into the context of Jesus interaction with the, with the Pharisees here. And so what he says is not that the focus is not don't obey the Sabbath. What, but what he is saying is you need to shift your perspective because there's more important things. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There, there's more important features such as mercy and compassion and justice that need to be taken into account. If they would have looked at it through that lens rather than the need for strict obedience at all times and rather looked at the spirit of why this was implemented, they'd have a better view. Uh, Mark, I think, gives a good a good piece of information whenever he he goes into this in Mark chapter 2. Right around verse, it's the end, like mid twenties, close to verse thirty. But he he says the Sabbath was not made for man, or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Verse twenty-seven, and he, it's it's verse twenty-seven. Okay, so verse twenty-seven, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and so right. he's getting here to the spirit of the Sabbath, and the spirit of the Sabbath was a provision for man to remember and to think and to rest. And it wasn't supposed to be this feature that you bind heavier burdens onto people and you condemn them because they picked up a little bit of grain so that they could survive. 
That's a great. Yeah. I, see, I knew there was a better way point. to say it. <laughs> well, that was the 10 minute version. You did the 10 <laughs> second version. Well, well and, and what we have here is an opportunity for us to give an explanation that we talked about in pre-recording that we don't want to go overboard with this idea of cruciform hermeneutic, that every little single detail is God manipulating mankind to the cross, that every single detail is, you know, about getting Jesus Christ here, but rather God operating within the brokenness of man to execute his plan that still came about even through our brokenness. This reference here where Jesus says, if you had known I desire mercy, not sacrifice. One reference to this is Hosea 6, where I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Jeffrey, I love that you brought this point out here because we have a tendency as human beings to, well, we were in this position, it was wrong, we're going to shift way over here. And, you know, now we're going to leave off doing the works and just say love is good enough. One is no good without the other. They were wrong because they were trying to do the exercises of God, the rituals of a Jehovah-focused life without having that love of who God was. If you love the idea of God and don't do his rituals and, and the things that are required to be a part of him, then you're in no better spot. You, you can't have this pendulum back and forth, but rather this idea of operating within the scripture of God is remaking humanity in Jesus Christ and what the cross It's the did. idea that Jesus presented where he said, you shouldn't have left the yes. others under. I mean, you, you should still be doing this, right. but, but put the correct emphasis on the correct things. Yes. And it, interestingly enough, in that passage, Jesus says, you've left off the weightier matters. But then he backs that up by saying, this you should have done and not left the others undone. So while right. we have these idea of weightier matters... Jesus says it's it's all important and it's all under the umbrella of loving who God is. Right. And the thing that's there, Jared, is that they were so picky on weighing their herbs out of their garden, which really that doesn't have anything to do with the character of God. But justice and mercy are core to the character of God. And if you had to pick one of the two to say, oops, I forgot. It's it's better to do the things that that teach you about the core character of God because they will lead you to do the others, mm-hmm. and so we have to put the emphasis on the right thing. Well, I think again, this comes back. You know, we we I mentioned uh, hermeneutic versus exegesis versus eisegesis. You know, if we're looking at the context that this was actually going on in, you know, the Pharisees had a lot of, and, I, and I've mentioned a few of these thought processes along the lines of the mission and so on, but they had arguments among one another about what the greatest command was. And they had these certain thought processes that were built into, if you obeyed the greater commandments, then you were more righteous. And it basically banked more points with God than the lesser commandments here. And that's why they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's the first commandment? And his response was to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so where they had in their thought process this, it's got to be the Sabbath, or it's got to be this, or it's it's got to be you know the ritual sacrifices, all these things. 
what Jesus answer, the weightier matter, the greatest command was to love God simply as that and completely as that. And I think that includes the character of God that you hit on, Jared, where it is these weightier matters of justice, of compassion, of mercy, and so on that we see within this particular context. Now, where we start to see what people often do is this eisegetical um, view of Scripture where they look at a passage like Matthew 12 and they say, see, I don't need to do those ritualistic things. I don't need to do and be involved in what people would refer to as religious works. Mm -hmm. What I need to focus on is this mercy and compassion and justice and love. But again, we come back to now we're reading our own context and our own situation and really our own desires into the way that we interpret this scripture, rather than looking at what Jesus was actually trying to communicate and to the people he was trying to communicate and the context that they were in, because it does matter as we try to interpret this text. And once we truly understand the meaning, then we can start to pull the proper application for ourselves. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, Jeffrey. And if you remember in some of our first episodes, our first month of recording, we were talking about love. And we said that in one of, I think it was on our round table that if you are obeying any of God's commandments in such a way that allows you to not love your brother, you're doing it wrong. Remember that? And I think this is the same thing. Like they, they had all these things about, well, we've got to obey God. And they did it all in such a way that allowed them to manipulate and defraud and harm people. And it was just totally off the rails. And there's another example of this here in Matthew 12. If we start in verse nine, it says when he had departed from there, he went to their synagogue. It says, behold, there was a man who had a withered hand that they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? See, they didn't care about this man with a withered hand. All they wanted to do is use him as, as a rock, to throw at Jesus. Verse 11, he said to him, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he puts them into the scripture. He kind of, maybe he's pulling the, uh, the, uh, the ISO whatever word trick on them. <laughs> he's saying, Put yourself in this position. If you had a sheep that was in a hole on the Sabbath, are you just going to sit? It, are you going to let it sit there and die because it would be breaking the law of God? Of course not. They're going to go pull it out. And Jesus, is like, but you want me to not help this man that is more important than your sheep? He said, of course it's okay to do good. And then he said, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored whole as the other. Now you could have said. Jesus, you were so right. I cannot believe I thought about it that way. And oh my goodness, you just performed a miracle that I've never seen before. And because of that, I'm going to glorify God. But that's not the way it went down. Because in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And to me, that's just, it's wild. And it shows the lengths that people are willing to go to not interpret scriptures correctly and to continue doing what they desire to do and to continue doing what they've always done. Um, again, I'm, I'm going to point back to a statement that Jared made. 
after 400 years of silence. It's easy for us in 2023 to look at the scriptures and be like, how in the world did they not see this? 400 years of silence. And then God all of a sudden starts talking to people. Miracles start happening. Like you would think somebody would be like, oh, something big is about to happen. Because you've got this silence before the crescendo. And yet what is actually happening is they're digging their heels into the ground because they don't want to change, which is why Jesus said, repent or you're all going to perish. Their entire worldview needed to change because their worldview approaches and it was it was scripture centered. But it was not about what God was doing. And so what we've seen, you know, particularly in the passage above, is they had an eisegesis, and they took their context and applied it to the Scripture. And, you know, there's a passage that we all know, even though we didn't grow up in Jewish households, reading the Septuagint or the Old Testament, the Torah, or anything like that, but we know the story of the man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, and he was stoned. And that is a well-known story to us. And if you know that story, you're going to be perturbed by people doing work on the Sabbath, because here's a person that lost his life, so this must be really important. This has got to be important. And and again, they developed all of these extra rules with their Mishnah, the essential Septuagint companion, that became law to them. And here's Jesus doing things that seem to fly in the face of what's going on and, and the way they had established their lives. And so a cruciform hermeneutic is particularly important for people that want to follow God and how we approach the scripture. Because what the Pharisees had done is led people far afield of where Jesus was, and it required an entire life shift and a viewpoint shift, a worldview shift, when he was there in front of them doing the miracles. And what we have is a stark reminder and a a stark warning for us in the way we view the scripture can really change how we view the world and how we are to interact with it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And this is not just a problem that first century Jews had to wrestle with. I think this is a problem that we as uh, 21st century Christians have to look at too, because, you know, to my own shame, I have used scripture and and understood scripture in a certain way that excuse me from showing proper love to others uh a, a really kind of a quick and dirty example is um you know you see someone who's homeless or poor and they're begging and you know i really i don't want to help them you know let's say and uh, i can rationalize it by saying well you know the bible says if a man doesn't work you shouldn't eat doesn't look like he's working, so he needs to go get a job. It's not my not my problem, right? Well, maybe, but what's more important, using the law of God to excuse myself from doing a good deed or from showing Christian charity and kindness like Jesus always did? Right, and, and where's my concern with that situation? Because that is a common problem for a lot of us. Is my concern, I don't want to stop and talk to this person. I don't want to give them any of my goods. And so I'm applying an eisegesis, putting my context into Thessalonians. 
or am I looking at this from the con- from the viewpoint of what is right to do as a person of God, as an image bearer of Jesus Christ? What am I called to do in this situation, and how can I best demonstrate the light of Christ in my life? And sometimes that's not giving there, and sometimes it's absolutely giving there and doing what you can to push to sow that seed. But I can tell you, and again, you know, we didn't mean this to be a confessional episode, but my attitude has been, I don't want to do this and I have an out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to keep within the same vein of, of Matthew chapter 12, you've got to ask yourself the question, why did God want that communicated with us? Why did he make the statement if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Was it to keep us from stopping at a stop sign and giving somebody some food? No, it wasn't. But that's where the eisegetical method starts to come in as a way to excuse ourselves. Yep. Go ahead yeah. and give the context there since we've talked about it. Do what? I, I was just, the context there is because people in the church were being busybodies. And, right. and Paul, I mean, they're expecting the end to come or the fruition of God's plan to immediately happen. And so they quit their jobs and were living lives of talebearers. They were they're, gossips. They're just being layabouts. And, and yeah. And these are people in the church, right? We would expect people with the knowledge of Christ who have, have commands to provide for themselves and their household. But we can't take we can't take the law of God and apply it to people who are outside of Christ. It's not fair. I mean we can't hold them to the same standard of behavior, you know. There's there's a place where they need to begin, and that's not it. Exactly. And, and maybe it's a segue to that. And and there's so many things where, again, if you're taking an exegetical approach and a cruciform hermeneutic says this person doesn't understand how they're made in God's image and how they can be propelled forward. And so here's an opening for me to have a gospel-centered life, something else we've talked about, and with my goods, move that forward yeah. and execute my role in the kingdom. I mean, we, we have the opportunity to shine the light of God and, you know, taking the approach of I'm going to show them by not helping them is like a laser blaster. That's light, but it's not helpful light. Maybe we need to light a candle instead, you know, and that's stopping and having the conversation. And again, not every time, but when it's appropriate, when we can and, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of minutia there, but right. our motivation can't be because well, the Bible says I don't have to. Well, not quite. Right. And and so we have this guy. He's again. They're they're still harping on this Sabbath thing. They're demonstrating that they're not getting it, and so Jesus does good. And that's that's the thing. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And so Jesus demonstrates what he says in Mark that the Sabbath wasn't made for man, but man for the Sabbath. Jesus is still keeping the Sabbath because he wasn't leaving that undone, but now he's doing good. And one thing we talked about, and and I want to briefly touch on this before we move down, the weightier matters of the law that Jesus talked about, um, he hits on some in Matthew 23 and, and really gets on the Pharisees there about their wrong viewpoint. If you love justice, and you love mercy and, and loving and caring for your neighbor, 
then the things of God are absolutely important to you. Giving what is good and right to give to the temple is important to you, and you want to do that, but you have to love justice first. You can do it. See, and I'm going to rephrase that, Jared, real quick. Go ahead. Because I'm going to come back to what's said by Jesus about what the greatest command is. If you truly love God, then you're going to love justice. Right. Because that's a part of who he is. If you truly love God, you're going to love mercy because that's part of who he is. And all of these characteristics aren't isolated characteristics that are independent of one another. He is merciful and he is just and he is all these things. And so if we truly love God, that's going to be important to us. And we will want that in our lives. And then we get to the step of how it impacts our brother. And then it gets to the way that we you know, interact throughout all these things in terms of the sacrifice and so on that you were, that you were getting to before I very rudely interrupted you. No, you're good. You, you got me there quicker because I was building to that point about how, if we love God and if we love justice, then we're going to love God. And if we love God, we're going to love these things. And now it brings us around to not approaching God's word, like a law book, like your school handbook, it's not what that is. Now, there are laws contained in it because God is just. There is standards in it because God, by existing, has standards. His existence calls everyone to be in confirmation to him. But if we love him, we want to do those things. That's where our desire is. And what we see with these examples we've looked at is people that have gone to the scripture their scripture, and from that, drawn out a law book. They've, they've left off really who God is, and they've made the Mishnah now that's the, you know, we, we would think of it like a, a Torah for dummies, but that isn't what it became. It, it became the handbook to the Bible, and now all you have is the laws. And so you look at these things, well, God told us to do this, he told us not to do this, and you've left off why that is. And so when we look at God's word from the standard of a law book, as opposed to a standard or as opposed to approaching it with a cruciform hermeneutic, then we leave off who God is and what he is doing and, and what we can do because of him. So I think it's important that we continue to, to scroll down in, in Matthew chapter 12 and look at yet another aspect of this cruciform hermeneutic. And Christopher's actually the one who brought this up, and it actually gave the idea of Matthew chapter 12. But it's in looking at some of these scriptures um, throughout the Bible and seeing Jesus in them. Now, like we said, we can't directly tie every single scripture to Jesus, but I think we can indirectly. But there are some situations and some narratives that we read in the old scriptures that it's it's kind of hard to see Jesus in them unless it's pointed out. And I believe that this presents a good situation and a good example of how some of these narratives really point to Jesus in a way that if we didn't have this revealed to me, it would blow, absolutely blow my mind. So Christopher, I'm going to turn that over to you. Oh, thanks, man. I'm, I'm champing at the bits on this one. And look, I mean, there are literally hundreds of examples 
of of um, shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, right? If you were to, the way I like to explain it, if you had Christ on the cross and you shined a light um, from the future back toward Jesus, his shadow falls across the Old Testament and and declares him there. As as he said in Matthew 5, you know, they declare him, they, they bear witness of him. And so Jesus shows us how it's done. This is a short master class on cruciform hermeneutic. Matthew 12, verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And you're thinking, okay, what, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Is he going to come back here and do a sign? Is he going to is he going to preach to the Ninevites? What's he going to do? Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And whenever I first read that, Jeffrey, my mind was absolutely blown. I was like, wow. Like, I didn't understand that that Jonah is the one who's sent from God to preach to a sinful and rebellious people. And that because some people didn't like that plan of God, that he was thrown into the, the fish. And the fish is a symbol for Sheol, right? And he's there for three days and, and three nights. And he comes up again to preach that message anyway, and the people repent. And it's such a perfect little package of the gospel in the book of Jonah. And then Jesus rubs it in. And then he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh, which by the way, these people would have, they would have called the people of, of Nineveh. I mean, they were terrible sinners. But he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said, the Ninevites would rise up and condemn you because they listen to Jonah and you won't listen to one who's greater than Jonah, me. And then he says, the queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And I just love how he turns this passage right on him. And I don't know, what, what are you guys' thoughts on this passage? It's just so much. And so as you look at this, there's so many details that are parallelisms that we could dig into and we could just spend a lot of time on that. But just looking at, as you said, a master class of cruciform hermeneutics here, taking what seems like an insignificant, really cool story, but how does that fit? And Jesus says it fits because it all points to me. It points to the cross. It points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he puts this little snippet in there with the queen of Sheba, the, the queen of the south. And um, that has nothing to do really with the narrative of Jonah. Um, it's actually a completely different narrative with Solomon, but yet again, looking at this situation in a way that says it still has an indirect connection to Jesus. And it's these types of ideas that if we can look at the scriptures in a way that point to Jesus, that build to Jesus, that 
show us something that God intends for us to understand about him and his son that we can say, oh, that makes so much sense. You know, I think about the story of Joseph and I'm, and I'm going to try to keep this brief because I can go on a large tangent about the, the type of Christ, which Joseph is, but you know, you look back at the narrative of Joseph and you see all the events that transpired in a way that brought about good and how it fit into God's plan perfectly. And I truly believe that God's plan would have per- would have happened just how he purposed it, even if other people would have made different decisions. But to see how all of this works in a way that builds to God's ultimate plan is just so interesting. And it includes a small, short narrative about a man named Jonah. But that's the sign. And I believe that's the essence of cruciform hermeneutics is right there. Yep. That's it. And Jonah was imperfect. And and it's interesting that Jesus brings in both of these illustrations pointing to present day in himself. And in doing so, he is pointing through history and drawing all of this history to him, a greater than Jonah is here, a greater than Solomon is here. And he is pulling that history forward, just like he did in John 5. They testify of me. All right, well, I could talk about Jonah all day. Uh, I love that, and I love how the Lord brings his example to us and, and teaches us how to do this ourselves. And so I would challenge all of, all of our listeners, as you go through the Old Testament, look for Jesus and look for him. And again, not to take it too far, but look for those clues and see if, if it's backed up by other scriptures. And I think you'll be amazed what, what the Lord can teach you. Uh, there's so much we could say. I'm curious if you guys have any other thoughts or any other verses you want to reference. Yeah, as we bring this to a wrap, I want to look at Ephesians and, and there's so much in Ephesians we could look at, but 4 through 10, with the, the focus of a cruciform hermeneutic, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to set the context here, he is God, him is Jesus. God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame in him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he accepted, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And so he sets out this cruciform hermeneutic. He is viewing the gospel through the lens of God working this before the foundation of the world. And God worked that plan. We see it working in the garden. When man falls, God didn't just wipe it out and start over. When man became so corrupt before God, he 
had a remnant of people that he saved to himself and reset humanity in Noah. He reset humanity in Abraham. And God works this plan throughout the Old Testament, bringing it to his conclusion of bringing all things in Christ, in him. It was always God's plan, the purpose and good pleasure of his will. So as we approach the scripture, we don't want to push ourselves and our ideas into it. We want to allow it to flow out to us with the mindset of God had this plan before the world began. What does this plan mean? What does it mean that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world? And it's easy for us to get caught up in ideas of predestination and and arbitrary salvation and damnation. But what he predestined was the plan that his son would come, make himself a part of his own creation. And through the sacrifice of himself, he would redeem humanity and he would remake humanity. And that right there, Jared, I think shows another lens in which people will often interpret scripture. We see things like before the foundation, words like predestined, and we start to read into passages. We Number one, we use an eisegetical approach. We read ourselves into the passage as somebody who has been predestined before the foundation of the world. But we're viewing it through this lens of how, what does this teach me about how God chose me rather than looking at it as a cruciform hermeneutic of God's plan before the foundation of the world was Jesus and that he would unite people from all over the world in Jesus and that it was predestined that these people would be adopted to himself in Jesus And everything points back to in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus, and not me, 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 me. Yeah, the old saying is it's the plan, not the man, right? And the eisegetic approach says it's, it's, it's the man, not the plan. And if you want to get down to it, there's only been one who's been predestined, and it was Jesus. And if we want to join in the blessings and the inheritance of Jesus, we have to become part of him, accepted in the beloved. Right. And and we're going to have to leave off because it's not the topic, what all that means. <laughs> and we would reference you back to our gospel series where we talk about God remaking humanity and so forth, because there's a lot to that. But under this principle where we're approaching the scripture with a cruciform hermeneutic to apply an exegesis approach, an exegetical approach where we're drawing out what was intended. We want to approach it with the idea that Jesus Christ is all and in all, that he was God's plan and God works that plan. And real quick, as we wrap, we talked about Joseph and his work in Egypt and what God eventually brought about through Moses and how God was able, even though the leader of Egypt was evil, he was absolutely evil in the embodiment of an idol God worked through him to demonstrate his glory and all of those things lead us closer to the cross and they lead us closer to the cross. And we're set up really well to go into the next topic with what we read there in Matthew 12. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And what we want to talk about next week is 
the still small voice and I actually sent this to a brother and he said, I don't, I don't know what you're drawing on here. And I will admit that I'm applying a little bit of artistic liberality with the, uh, an example here, but I hope you'll go with us on that journey as we really dig into the miracle that seems so benign to us having God's word in book form where we can access it. Sounds good. I know that our, uh, our listeners are going to enjoy that as we, as we dig into that next week. So guys, this has been a, a great discussion. Um, I mean, I'm, I was excited about it and really um, enjoyed looking at this. And I just think um, that the cruciform hermeneutic hermeneutic is the approach that brings the utmost glory to God and the utmost blessing to humanity if we just use it as it's supposed to be used. So thank you to all of our friends and listeners who are a part of this podcast. We appreciate you. And um, if you've found this content meaningful, we'd ask you to to give it a like, give it a share, give us a rating, uh, and tell someone you know about the good stuff that you hear on the Brother Cousins podcast. We are going to allow Jared uh, to close us out with a prayer. So Jared, uh, take us home. Our loving Father, we come before you with hearts overflowing with thanksgiving. Father, we thank you for the plan that you put in place before the foundation of the world, that your son would come and make himself a part of his creation, that he would show us how to live before you and what you mean it to be good as humanity, that he would ultimately give his life, not that it was taken from him, but that he laid it down for us, that he would become sin on our part, and that we have the opportunity and the blessing through him to be redeemed, to be your sons and daughters. God, we thank you that you have shown us and, and given us your word that we can look throughout scripture and see how you executed your plan in a broken humanity. And God, we, we pray that you would help us to take hope in that. And that even though sometimes we see our own brokenness and how poorly we exam- or demonstrate the light of Christ and the life of Christ, that your will will be done and that we have an opportunity to be a part of that will and be fellow laborers with you. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in love for your word and grow in love for you. And and by doing so, grow in love in all the areas of our lives where it has an impact, love for one another, love for your church, love for your kingdom and love for the loss that drove Jesus to give himself upon the cross. Father, we pray that you would build us up where we're weak, forgive us of our sins. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next week.